That's how it starts. The fever, the rage, the feeling of powerlessness that turns good men cruel. Welcome. I am Andrew Dice. And I am Stephen Colbert. And this is Bible Talk. No, it's Batman v Superman by the Minute, a podcast. Where we watch Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, the Ultimate Edition, in single minute increments, and then we talk about it. We concluded our last minute, minute 42, talking about the apocalypse, not the planet, the event. And and Doomsday. Yes. The event, and maybe more. I think we ended with Lex having his... I think he's still tapping. Minute 43, which we have arrived at, begins... Almost as soon as Senator June Finch stops him from drumming his fingers. I've already teased this as my favorite Jesse Eisenberg minute now, so let's get to it. Do you know the oldest lie in America, Senator? Can I call you June? You can call me whatever you like. Take a bucket of piss and call it Granny's peach tea. Mm -hmm. Take a weapon of assassination and call it deterrence. You won't fall a fly on me. I'm not going to drink it. My first note is Lex doesn't like being touched. Oh, interesting. That's a great pull out. I, why don't you start by telling me? Cause I, I, okay. What, how does this start? The exchange is she stops him. And again, this is another case of me when I was watching it the first time being like, I love Holly Hunter. I don't know if we've said like Holly Hunter is just the best. I believe Zack Snyder said he basically like wrote this character to cast Holly Hunter in it. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, she's, it's it's amazing that that character exists in a superhero movie yeah. to me. And not only that she exists, but that she's so prominent. I don't want to get, get ahead of ourselves with, with her character too much, but just that she has a scene like this or a number of scenes that she has and the way she faces down Lex. Mm-hmm. What was your what was your question though? You want me to describe my impression of her stopping his hand or of Well no, just to how great she is. Oh yeah, she's awesome. <laughs> um also she carried like at least like two of the trailers, I think, almost were yeah, yeah. kind of her, her um today's a day for truth. Like if I think of a Batman v Superman trailer or this movie in general, like that is kind of what rings on my head. It also seems like in hindsight, a figure of reconciliation. She wants she's holding Superman responsible but does not want his head. I think yes. it's interesting that that she comes to an ending with Lex where that's what he's after. I don't think we give enough credit to the the plot of what happens. I guess it's so much more spotlighted than the subtext of what is happening with her plotline. Well, I feel like what's amazing about her that I think maybe is on display in this minute more than anywhere else is when it comes to a movie about deception and things that are fallen and diamond absolutes that are destroyed and people that aren't honoring principles. Mm-hmm. She's probably, I guess maybe other than Alfred, <laughs> like the, um, and maybe Diana, the, the most principled character in this movie. Like she is kind of the anchor yeah. of, of the plot in that sense. There's no duplicity there. Like she is what she claims to be. Exactly. And and to have a politician in a movie that that's that's that way. And she's not like a Kennedy figure. And so, like you said, that how she kind of holds Superman responsible, but she doesn't blame 
him. And given the context, she's not like necessarily even protecting the government either. Cause we have to remember that her, the hearings that Lex references here are sort of them finding out what Superman's responsible for, what his role is in the world. And she appears to be kind of a non interventionist and that she thinks that it's important to understand the sovereignty of other nations and that, um, Superman acting as like an unofficial, like, is he acting as a representative of the U.S. in any way, or is he unofficial, or is that association avoidable? Is he a free actor? Yeah. And I don't know. I don't want to open it up to be too political or, or interpret too much from it, especially just because that taints a lot of things. But I always found it really fascinating that th- that's kind of her stance on foreign policy, and she's from Kentucky. Yeah. Because I, th- I believe in the, in the movie, she's a Democrat because Rand Paul has very similar stances on a, a lot of things, not not everything. So she's clearly not a stand in for him in, in any way. But the hearing, the way she conducts the hearings kind of feel like something that would happen that way or like her. I can see her having like a similar stance on like drones to what he does. But yeah. obviously making her more of a clear stand in for, for him has way, way, way more baggage than I think Snyder would want to drag into this movie. Yeah, I think she's a politician that I could never see getting elected. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, she's what's... too good. Like, I guess it kind of, you know, I'm not going to make her out to be, like, she's clearly a shrewd operator here with, with how she handles a billionaire like Lex, but she is principled. And it does seem like her mission here is to cut through the interests well and i think it's like he tries to you compare this to the jolly rancher scene for example where yeah remember lex puts the jolly rancher in um what's the other senator, senator barrows senator barrows's mouth and pushes it in and tells him it's cherry and i was comparing this scene to that one earlier about how like theatrical that was and kind of how he kind of just danced through it well you get the impression that that senator plays the game yeah, exactly. And he, and he, and he sets up a very similar situation here and is kind of doing the same song and dance, literally drumming his fingers like to a rhythm. Yeah. And, and it's like a record scratch when she stops his hand and the whole facade, the curtain raises and it's like, Oh no, she's not taking the Jolly Rancher <laughs> or the bourbon or yeah, what, or the, the, the peach tea. She's not drinking it. <laughs> um, which is actually, I guess, a, an interesting, sort of parallel to this in, in Barrows is Barrows played ball, but it was also represented by him um, consuming something that Lex gave him. And Lex tries to have her drink bourbon here, which as yeah. I mentioned in the last minute seems to, to be a, um, like a metaphor for um, deception. Alcohol is often paired with, with deception in the movie. And then, um, and then again, she then makes the, the reference to the granny's peach tea. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not going to drink it. Yeah. So, so it's just very much. I'm not. I'm not playing your games. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not eating your Jolly Rancher, drinking your bourbon, drinking your tea. I remember at the time thinking like, yes, you are seeing what this guy really is. Yeah. Now I watch the scene, and the reason why I love this scene so much now in this minute is that she doesn't see. He says to her, "Do you know the oldest lie in America?" And she isn't listening. Yeah. Like she she is not interested in the question that we now know is it can be read a lot of different ways the fact that he's bringing it up here but the fact that she does not hear him she thinks that this is bravado on his part and she says you know you can you can call me June you can call me whatever you like you can take a weapon of assassination and call it a deterrent so it's even like oh man she has seen through all of this to him and what he's 
up to and what he's after, and she is not listening or fooled by. Yeah. Well, it's not even because she's. I want. I want to be. I'm defensive of here now because you're suggesting that she's that she's not like astute. I know that's maybe not not your intent, but I because I, she is right on the money. She just has doesn't have any concept for what nightmare of an individual exactly she's dealing with. That's if what this I mean. Was, yeah. If this was any other schmoozing billionaire trying to get something out of her it's clear that she can i mean she even says later in the movie uh, i can wrestle i'm i was born on a farm i can wrestle a pig or something like that yeah it's clear that she is she just doesn't do the political dance she calls things what they are and then and instead of dancing around it just tackles it head on and that's exactly what she does here yeah not knowing the man that she's doing it to is going to turn an alien into a a freak of nature force of destruction later in the movie. <laughs> like she just has no, just no concept that any of that exists. Yeah. She says, right. You can take a, a bucket of piss and call it granny's peach tea. You won't fool a fly or me. Yeah. That's explicitly saying I'm not fooled by what you're trying to do, but Lex has a smile playing on his lips the entire time because she does not know who she's dealing. Like she does not know what he's capable of. The reason why I love it now is if you go back and look when she shuts him down completely, the last play he makes is, you know, the oldest lie, which is you can almost be seen as like, look, let's be honest here. We're both not good, right? The yeah. power is not innocent. She runs through it and hits him with all her principle that I'm not to be messed with. And I think that is the moment that he knows he's going to kill her. Yeah. And that's why the smile starts to spread. And the fact that she is talking and thinks she has a handle on the situation and he is silent and he's listening to every single word that she's saying because he takes that bucket of piss and calls it Granny's PhD right before he kills her. Yeah. Because in this moment, I thought it was him being disarmed. And now that I know what he does, this was him making the decision. I know what I'm going to do. Like yeah. this was my last attempt. And then obviously paired with, you know, it's like, it's it's on the nose because he literally gives her the the jar of of because it's calling back to this exact yeah moment. I mean basically he's saying remember that that is when I decided to kill you and he wants her to spoiler alert yeah he wants her to know that that's when he made the decision there's no other real reason to call back to because it is such an offhand comment it's like well Lex is either a moron or oh my god he's so malevolent he wants her to know when he decided yeah I think there's more reason to call back to it than that though because while he he is in control. He was called his charade was was shattered. He wanted or I assume he wanted her to let him play this game. Yes. And she exposed him for like she didn't even flinch and knew exactly what he was. And I think he hates that about her because um sure. even though he's evil, I don't think that he wants to be evil. He want he he thinks that he's legitimately good, so he wants to be able to pretend that he's good while he does what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Right? Like everyone is the hero of their own story. And she said, No, if you're going to accomplish what you want to accomplish, you're going to have to do it as a villain. I'm not going to let you be the hero in your story. And he said, We will both acknowledge that it's a jar of piss then. Yeah. When when you because I think that he views her as less than him. I think he views most people as less than him. Yeah. So that kind of speaks to the I guess for me the difference when I thought about that and really looked at like Jesse Eisenberg in that exchange because he seems amused. Mhm. Mm I always saw that as vindictive and now I see it as like acknowledgement. Yeah. Recognizing that you saw through it to me. 
Yeah. And this is basically me conceding and saying, you saw who I was and that's why this is happening. Yeah. We could have played, we could have danced around and played my game and instead we're here. You could have played Paul Revere here and let me play the army. Yeah. Okay, fine. Uh, You have to go too. I also love, I have to call this out and it might just be because of the haunting of Hill House now. Behind June, there is a painting that looks like it is a portrait of a man. It is sitting on the floor. It's not hung. It's not the one that's wrapped in the sheet that you see coming in. It looks like it's almost beside the doorway um, in the background. And it is just the top of the man's head is is in frame, looking at her from behind. Mm-hmm. And as the conversation goes on and as they speak, and I'm watching it thinking, oh, she does not realize what's happening. The shot cuts back and it looks like there is now another person looking out from behind the bookshelf at her. Yeah, it looked like there's like, I think at one point it looks like there's three heads back there. And now I encourage everyone to go back and watch that because I was I was watching it the first time going, "Oh my god, June, like look like this is the whole with the the idea of the sphinx and like being riddled, you know, and deception lies." And now without mentioning it, there is just another man appearing behind her that she's unaware of and then cut away and cut back and now there's more. I was just like, "June." Yeah. You don't even know like it, it's such um it just doubles down on basically her not knowing the threat that she's actually is is coming for her now. Yeah. It is so weird because now once you see it, it looks like a – I see like a little man with like black slicked hair in his ears. Yeah. Like peeking out from behind the – oh my god. It, what, it's one of those things that I never noticed and then when I noticed it this time – it like sort of makes the hairs in the back of my neck go up as like, I want to look like I'm literally, I'm looking back behind me now sitting at my desk. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it, it's so unsettling. Um, and like, I like the comparison to Hill House because it's got that same effect of like, was that statue there before? Yeah. Like, was that, was that just a, a angle change or a lighting difference or, or did that just appear? Which I think is kind of the idea of, I think there's a lot of moments in this movie that are shot almost like a horror movie. Yeah. In that way, like so, the sort of the any c- scene where they're really dealing with devils or anything like that, and um, and this is very much one of them, especially with all those deep shadows. Yeah, it's. I mean, crazy. this well, the shot of coming into to Lex's emporium of biblical analogies is that is a shot in a horror movie, right? Like that's kind of setting the stage for where the horrors are going to play out. Yeah, and I like that it's done. The room could be staged in a way that would call out to those things more explicitly, but you don't put a sphinx behind a character who is being deceitful without... Yeah, exactly. Well, and and we're talking about, once again, is it is it too on the nose or, or too ham-fisted? And, or um, is it or, or or too subtle? I guess. Um, yeah. And with something like this, I view all those things way more as flavoring than sort totally. of informing the story. Imagine this scene if it was like he was stroking the horse head and the Sphinx was like right in frame and then it zoomed in on the Sphinx and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, Zack Snyder isn't, those things are here for thematic flavor. As far as I'm concerned, the dialogue and like the shots themselves inform the story. There's Easter eggs and there's, and there's things that kind of add to sort of deepen it and, and et cetera. But you could not notice the horses in this scene and it's not going to, prevent you from understanding what the movie is doing totally but the fact that they're there and you can look into them and find that extra depth adds a lot to it um obviously i never looked nearly this deep into it and i already loved it yeah uh, like on on first viewing and so 
you know, looking at it now, you know, I'm not going to, if I'm arguing with someone about whether or not the movie is good, I'm not going to say, well, did you see the horses in the fireplace scene? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't change what the, the text of the story is. It's just the, like the, the language you're using to tell it, right? Exactly. But kind of once you're on board with that, like, oh, yeah. I like this. I want to look into it deeper. That's the kind of like this. This scene is a great example of why we're even doing the podcast. Is yeah, um, to look into all this, and that's it's so fun to to just to kind of take take that dive. Yeah, every director who's kind of they become known for this. Like I mentioned, Black Sales before. When you have a a, a woman in a character who is being restricted by the time she's living in, and behind the character she's talking to is a birdcage. You don't go, oh, real subtle. You know, you say, yeah. oh, that's cool. Like that's being used to invite the viewer to engage with it in a way that they don't normally. And I think mm-hmm. now this is a – yeah, you're right. This is a great scene for it because there's so much going on in the background that I think I had to watch it through the first couple times because as soon as I started looking what was behind the characters, I wasn't listening to the dialogue anymore. Another one which is uh, maybe like a a microcosm of this is the way the scene ends, which is – Lex saying, do you think it would be okay if I changed just one thing? Cue the music, <laughs> which is just exquisite. Um, it's, uh, it, that doesn't happen, I guess, that much in these kind of movies where the music is such a, a clear separation between the scenes. Yeah. And it also reminds you that up until this point, it has been <laughs> silent. silent. It is, yeah. Uh, there's a crackling fire. And dialogue. I don't think we even mentioned that in the last minute, but I believe there is no. Yep. Yeah, because it, it ends when the door, the music ends when the door opens from mm-hmm. the previous scene, right? And then all the way up through the last minute and into this minute, silence, just the crackling of the fire. Yeah. And then you get the musical cue here. And not that moments of silence are, are rare or an anomaly in movies these days, but to kind of have that long of a stretch of dialogue, it just really adds to the tension of it. Like it's, it's like when you realize that you're not breathing music, I feel like kind of does that where the music comes in and you're like, Oh, okay. We're let's look around. Let's kind of back yeah. out of the scene for a second and figure out what's going on. And, um, and this, this musical cue very much does that. As we've kind of talked about almost a quarter of the way through the, through the movie. And it is basically the closest thing we're going to get to kind of an act break. The music yeah. plays us out to black and then we pick up. Yeah. Well, and, and it's got that, sort of a thematic conclusion to it's like when the curtain lifts for Lex yeah, yeah. and, and Finch and you get him in there. And so it's very much, I, I even use the, the visual reference of a curtain, not even thinking about it, but yeah, I can very much see this being the end of kind of taking these themes that we've been talking about and it brings them all kind of to a head. And then it kind of lifts with the more literal, like, Oh no, this is no longer a, the charade is no longer. Okay. Now we are just openly moving forward. We have finally arrived at the point where if you had asked me before starting this podcast, when does the movie really start moving? (laughs) I would have said at that library fundraiser. Yeah. But before we do, we get a breathtaking, massive painting that is, I assume it was created for this movie because I've never found it anywhere. It's it's playing with a motif that lots of people have used of the, you know, archangels descending on uh, the demons a, pl- yeah. a play of light and dark up and above and below. Obviously, Lex thinks should be inverted. Yeah. Well, that's another theme that we haven't talked about for a while also. But just, yeah, the above and below is yeah. is in there again. Don't think someone an angel just because they're coming from the sky. I also think it's an interesting note to end on because it occurred to me that Bruce and Lex think they are the avenging angel. Yes. 
Superman is going to be the one framed in that position and doesn't want to be. <laughs> exactly. Well, and like I mentioned in the last minute, they both kind of project the, onto Superman in yeah. that way also. Right? They're the avenging angel and Superman, who they both kind of project their – that comic book debate article that I, I, I think I referenced – I think I referenced that last minute. But a really interesting point the author made in that was about how they project their fathers onto Superman. And then for Lex, it's the failure of the of the, the deity, right? And it's mm-hmm. your job is to is to be a provider and a protector, and you failed. And, um, or in, and for Bruce – his father was not Lex's father, but Superman sort of failed to be that also. And so you get that he failed to, to save his family in Metropolis and you get the, you even get later, you know, you let your family die. They both kind of put him in that position of they project their father onto him and then, and then paint him as the devil and then themselves as, as the angel. Yeah. Um, which, you know, and then that's why Lex says that it, it needs to be flipped. Oh, you could, I mean, cut together him saying that with Bruce looking up at, you know, Superman as he's having the same realization and him and Lex shake hands and give each other like a knowing nod of like, we are a hundred percent on the same page right now. Yeah, exactly. But like if they had just kind of come out to each other and said, Hey, we need to get rid of this guy. We need to work together. Probably Bruce would have been like, yeah, cool. Let's do it. Um, the other interesting thing about this, this painting, which I think we kind of briefly discussed offline and, um, and probably think that it's not the case, but it's fun just for the sake of, you know, looking at things and thinking they're fun is that when you flip it upside down, you could say that the demon's wings make an omega symbol, which uh, which we already had in the you see in the in the fireplace. You have the horseshoe there also. Yeah. Um, it's not quite clear enough to um, to definitively be that. So it could be you know a variety of things. I think the picture that I saw had someone just like with any picture. If you take it and you draw a red lines over it it's like oh hey look it says my name and then you take the red lines off and it's like okay maybe not yeah if you're of uh if you're of wallace keith's disposition <laughs> yes you could you could find it in there add it to the board yeah that is where we will end it with the music playing and we are fading to black to return to a less charged and allegory filled minute with bruce but well, I think I find it interesting that you'd frame it that way. I'm excited to talk about it with you because I think you could say it is just as charged and allegory-filled as this minute for some of the same reasons. The red capes are coming. The red capes are coming. Hmm. One if I land. Hmm. Two if I air. Hmm. 